This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the podcast, we talk with Dr. Lorna Williams, the chair of the FPCC Foundation, Professor Emerita, University of Victoria, and uh, just we get into conversation around some amazing stuff around language. Dr. Lorna is a protector of Indigenous languages, her community in particular, and sharing the importance for other communities to maintain language. And there's a piece of the story that she shares. It's remarkable about watching young kids at camp get into conversation in their family language, community language, and being able to protect that and how important it is. I love the conversation. It's coming up. Plus, on In Case You Missed It with Ryan O'Donnell, he highlights new Nicolas Cage movie, which is weird. It's about a pig and truffles and truffle pigs. Plus, are you okay with a good shave? Are you okay with electric cars? Are you okay? Are you okay with electric cars? Yeah, I guess. (laughs) I take the bus mostly, so. Yeah. All right. I think electric cars are super fun to drive. I don't believe electric cars are sustainable in any way. Like, like we're long ways away from batteries being okay. And, uh, we're long ways away as Canadians where it snows, unlike, uh, West Coast man here, um, where it barely snows, to being stuck in traffic for 20 minutes with an electric battery running your heater so you don't freeze to death when it's minus 25. I think we're a long way away. Although I do like the plug-in hybrid option. Like, the hybrids are pretty smart. I mean, it's just basic science. It's plus two here. That That's the equivalent of minus 25 for you guys. Plus it's two. Yeah. Um, and like any snow, any snow at all, slight dusting, whole city, done. Shut stops. down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not that like that everywhere. Um, but that being said, if you just think about the amount of uh, energy we lose with braking, like re- recapturing energy from braking, I've always thought we should just plug that back into the network. But all right. So this is an ongoing issue in California. It has to do with power. Right? Is there enough power? Here's more from KRON News. Breaking news for watching out of the East Bay, where you can see from this map from PG&E, more than 50,000 people in Fremont and Union City do not have power right now. Cronford's Gelong did send us this video showing us lights out in the area of Union City. The gas station you're at right now, Gail, is power back on? Do they have a generator or something? Well, Justine, uh, no gas here is shut off, so the gas station attendant is is making some calls, checking if he can get the okay, but the lights just came on here about 30 minutes ago, and I am one of those residents who are out of power earlier today, but my dad let me know that we have power back on. Okay, so what's happening is is uh, rolling power blackouts because there's not enough electricity. So they've made, this is happening in... California, it's been happening in uh, Texas too during the winter, right? Like there was that stuff through the trouble in the winter. So um, when demand exceeds supply, they do this this sort of really nice way <laughs> called a flex alert to say, shut off your stuff. So here's the thing. So they've made some recommendations. There's a big long list of recommendations. For example, avoid using major appliances such as your oven. Instead, cook uh, on the stove or use a microwave or grill outside, right? Uh, keep your refrigerator full with cold things like bottles of water 
And unplug your second refrigerator if you have a second one. I mean, how much food do you need? Adjust your thermostat to 78 degrees or higher so the cooling is better in your house. Also, by the way, cool your house more in the morning, they say. These are all really great things coming out of California, but how to be efficient. Here's the real kicker. The real kicker. Don't charge your electric vehicle between 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. Huh. What if you have to go somewhere? So just so you know, in the state where you should get an electric vehicle because they want you to be uber green... Uh, get that car. By the way, don't charge it. We can't charge it right now, so no driving for you. Well, it's a good thing that Los Angeles has such great, reliable public transit. <laughs> I don't know if you're being sarcastic. That's very it sarcastic. It's hard oh, to get anywhere terrible? in Los Angeles. Uh, there you go. So uh, for everybody, I mean, I look forward to, uh, you know, uh, protecting our planet as much as everybody, but we got to keep it real here. There's proof right there, and that's not even cold there. <laughs> It's hot, and that's the opposite. So you want to see where the future of his, uh, with electric cars is in Canada? Uh, there it is, right there. Do not charge your car <laughs> certain hours of the day. If you're out of electricity, by the way, you're just not going anywhere. My God. Are you okay? Oh, this one's sad. Are you okay with daredevils? Oh, uh, I feel like it's a thing of the past. I feel like it's an old-timey thing. And I come from the land of Daredevils, Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, yeah, we got like, I don't know, like 30 Daredevil wax museums in Niagara Falls. I, that's, a, that's an <laughs> exaggerated number. But I feel like it's an old-timey thing. I think we're past Daredevils, right? All right. Well, I mean... If you don't have an urge to get into a barrel and go over the falls no, yourself. No, no, I don't. No. Or walk well, across the, it on a tightrope. On a tightrope too, right? Um, the world lost one of its up-and-coming daredevils, though. He died during a failed attempt to break a world record. It's a terribly sad story. 28-year-old Alex Harville was trying to launch his bike off a ramp 351 feet at the Moses Lake Air Show in Washington in front of a crowd. He came up short and crash-landed on a dirt mound. This is more from Krem News. Moses Lake Air Show guests waited to see a local stuntman attempt a world-record motorcycle jump. Everyone that was around there was traumatized by that. I knew today, coming out here, that could be a chance. I really hoped it wouldn't. The Grant County Sheriff's Office says Alex Harville went to do a practice run of more than 350 feet. The next thing I know, he went off of the ramp, and he didn't make it to the hill. His back tire looks like it got caught. And then he flew through the air, and his helmet came off. And and then you just start praying. Debbie Williams, who says her son is close to Harville, says his jump fell short. The sheriff's office confirmed his death after being airlifted to a hospital. A terribly, terribly sad story. My goodness. Uh, The organizers of the show said medical personnel was prepared. They knew it was risky. Uh, He leaves behind his wife, Jessica, two young sons, Willis and Watson. His family told Krem that uh, the loved ones have set up a GoFundMe page for him, too. And in the video, you can't really see anything on the video um, other than the fact that the, the dirt pile he lands on, he sort of lands on just at the top of the rounding to the upslope. So the impact was not the smooth landing that you would see on a lot of those those things, but uh, heartbreaking story um, for that. So no, not okay with that in any way. All right, let's do one more here. Are you okay? 
a are you okay with getting a shave yeah i've never had a hot shave no, like getting one like i'd like to get a hot shave one day i've no. never had one no i um i mean i shave my head every day i do that every single day Every day. Yeah, I don't know if I would do you trust... take weekends off? I, I do, actually. When I don't have to go out very much, I will yeah. just, yeah, I'll, I will take, like, the full weekend off. But I, I yeah. before our, our meeting on Monday, I always make sure to shave, because... Really, know, hey? You don't want to see the cul-de-sac. No. I do want to see the cul-de-sac. I do. No, you, you probably right. couldn't really see it over Zoom anyway. All right. It's pretty high-resolution camera. You never know. Okay, so a dog in the States has gone mega viral after getting a much-needed shave. A stray Shih Tzu needed a haircut so badly you could barely tell it was a dog. That's because it had over six pounds of fur all over it. This is more from one of my favorite humans on TV, uh, CNN's Jeannie Moose. And stopped to first of all try to figure out what kind of animal it was. They couldn't really tell. They contacted the KC Pet Project in Kansas City, Missouri, which determined there was an 11-year-old Shih Tzu underneath that mess of hair. Come here, buddy. So he was 20 pounds and could barely walk. For the next two hours, while he was sedated, two veterinary staffers gave him the mother of all shaves. It was about six and a half pounds of hair. I mean, just instant relief that he felt to be able to get all of that hair off. They named the hairless wonder Simon and posted before and after photos and videos. Despite the yuck factor. Not going to lie, all of those mats were quite stinky. Simon became an internet star. Now that's one of the best good boys I ever did see. Wow. Wow. Simon the Shih Tzu. I bet you his back pain went away. <laughs> Maybe they gave him a little Dr. Hose on there to yeah. get the electricity running. Um, he was found in a wooded area. They don't know if he was, you know, got away, run away, abandoned, whatever, living on his own. But six pounds of hair. They say even Simon has to learn how to walk again after being weighed down for so long. They couldn't actually couldn't even tell what kind of dog it was until they shaved him. And then um, now they're getting lots of offers to adopt Simon uh, from from uh, from the folks. This is the Shift Podcast. I'm very excited about this conversation. Reason being, it's possible. I found my I found my spirit twin here in this. I, I did, it's true. My long lost soul sister, uh, Lorna Williams, joins us in conversation here today about language and the importance of language. Now, for me, the function of language is such an important part of finding clarity in our hearts. And isn't it ironic that preservation of indigenous languages around Canada is important, obviously, for heritage, um, future generations and all those things. But it really boils down to that one thing. I would say, Lorna, that it comes down to the finding clarity in your heart is the sort of the same destination. Uh, Thanks for being here and thanks for spending time with us uh, on the shift and helping us discuss all of these beautiful things. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to chat with you about uh, languages and and particularly the indigenous languages of these lands that we now call Canada. It's uh, one that's close to my heart. And has been my life's work. So yeah. I'm happy to be here with you. 
And it's beautiful. It really is. What do you um, now? Um, you've done a lot of speeches everywhere, um, UNESCO, and so many more. Uh, Dr. Lorna Williams, this is your life's work. And um, when you come home at the end of the day, and you're sitting with your family and your friends, and and all the people that are in your life who are from all different places in the world, I'm, I imagine, um, and you look at the language, the indigenous languages in general. Um, what do you see what's happening today in in those languages? Well, in the last um, little while, and really the, the last little while, um, I think that finally Indigenous peoples around the world um, are finally having a voice that can be heard and that is heard. And that's so exciting. And um, I, um, I'm so pleased with what people have been doing, the stories that people are telling about, um, in, about how they've kept their languages alive and um, how they're helping each other, teaching each other. And not only that, but helping the colonizers on every, you know, in every place helping the colonizers to see that uh, the languages that they tried to silence were not silenced and mm. that they're still here. It's um, such inspiring work that people are doing. And in um, so many of those stories, so many of those people are here in Canada, here in British Columbia, um, doing the work at... Uh, at keeping their languages living and thriving. It's interesting, you know, we look back you know, these few hundred years and all of the dreadful things that went on. And then we look where we are today and there's a long way to go. But today, yeah. in today's world, when, uh, you know, immigrants come to Canada, language is often protected in a lot of ways. You know, we have translators, we have government folks who will offer services in different languages and everything else. Um, quite the quite the opposite of the way it was when it was just by the way your whole way of life in your family we're going to pretend that doesn't exist anymore which you know that kind of is the way it was mm -hmm. uh, we've we've got a long way to go in this do you see that we as canadians and the canadian government offers those translations same respect for indigenous languages that you see for people from other countries in today's world that you know i mean i heard a I heard an advertisement, I think it was for a lawyer's office even, just the other day, where it said, you know, our services are available in these languages, da 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 da, da. I don't recall hearing, you know, a Native people's language in that. Yeah, that's very little. It's, as I said, it's just beginning. And I can see that there are services now um, in some parts of Canada. So, for example, uh, nor the Northwest Territories where they offer translation services in, um, in the indigenous languages in their area. And there are some, uh, I can see, for example, Anishinaabe and um, um, different languages maybe in, in the East. I don't see anything here yet in British Columbia. Which seems strange to me with um, all of the uh, cultural awareness that you see around BC, if you travel in Canada, to me, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but 
when it comes to respect for Indigenous peoples, I see more of that in BC than I do anywhere else in Canada. We're a Canadian show, and I find that um, particularly interesting or maybe ironic or maybe disappointing that, um, that it's not the same on the West Coast. Well, it's because for so long, uh, what was promoted is that there were only um, basically three languages that were thought, this is in, in kind of like the general Canadian politics um, and bureaucracy minds, was that there were only three languages that were, that were worth it, and that was Anishinaabe or Ojibwe, uh, Cree and um, Inuktitut, mm-hmm. because they, you know, because they were focusing on the numbers, the numbers of speakers and the numbers of people who might speak that language. And uh, here in British Columbia, we have such a, a diversity of language, of languages. Like there are more languages just in this province than all the rest of the country combined. And hmm. so, you know, so it makes it difficult. And when you think about uh, then what was being promoted, you know, that there were only three languages that were worth it, then, um, you know, that that mindset continues and we have to be able to help people to change their minds. And one of the things that uh, one action that has taken place recently was um, the city of Duncan, uh, on the on the island um, where they decided that they would um, use the help uh, Kamelim names uh, in their in their town and replace you know the signage well people have to learn how to use that language and that you know that's a huge step for a, a small place like that and mm. uh, you know to take that on and they had to work in partnership with the with the First Nations communities and, and to help people to spell, to help people to pronounce the, the word, the names. And um, so that I think is, a, it's a beginning. Well, there is um, such a misunderstanding. And I realize as we are speaking about this, that I don't even know, um, you know, I don't even know which languages connect to which areas and which people. And I don't even know, one of the questions that came up in my mind as you were saying that is, are the languages, say, on the West Coast, fundamentally the same with slightly different dialects as we would look at other languages around the world? Or are they completely different from, um, you know, geography, uh, area to area? Yes, um, that's, a, that's a really good, good question. Um, and I want to direct people to... Uh, to the First Peoples Culture Council website, and they just um, they just launched a map last week of the languages of British Columbia, and uh, and and the and by going to that map, people will be able to get a really good understanding. So in Canada, there are some say ten, some say eleven language families. Um, if you go to Europe, for example, there are three language families. So, you know, so you can see. So, and of those 10 or 11 language families in British Columbia, there are seven. Hmm. And so, um, and each language family has a number of languages. Wow. 
And each language has a number of dialects. Wow. And so, um, you know, so it's, uh, but it's like that everywhere in the world. And uh, we're no different. And, and so why might you ask, is uh, BC so different from the rest of Canada? And, and a large part of it goes to um, geography and biodiversity. All over the planet, you know, where there's a richness in biodiversity and um, different you know, and changes in geography, you'll see that there's it's it's mirrored in the language, and um, and it's not what people often you know can also think that you know we we're prisoners of our land. Um, it's just that there's so much voice to that land. And um, yeah. that's reflected in the language. Well, and that's the part that I, I heard when you said that is that I guess I imagine it, you know, years ago where travel happened, but wasn't as so readily available. So you would end up with these um, detailed stories of people, experiences, leaders that would really impact language and the way language was used. I would imagine. I would imagine that, you know, um, a group of people on the island, on the south end of the island versus the north end of Vancouver Island, say, would have language that's wrapped around a lot of the stories uh, that's created around the people and the, the elders and, and the, the, the leaders of those, those groups. So is that kind of how, what you mean, that there's just such depth locally in the way things were created? Yeah, well, there's depth locally because I was saying because of the richness of the land and um, and people did, you know, today people think that we don't that we, you know, we were um, landlocked in in our areas. But um, in the stories that people tell, people did a lots of traveling like we moved through our whole territory. we didn't stay, you know, we didn't really stay stationary in one place. And so people were traveling, people um, exchanged. Like when I was growing up in Mount Curry, um, people came from all over the place and people spoke different languages and people were so open and willing to learn each other's dialect, you know, to learn and speak each other's language, languages. And um, there wasn't a problem. But um, we made it a problem, and uh, because we were, you know, because there was a promotion that uh, you can only speak one language, and um, and so you know, language is uh, people people's brains have the capacity to speak more than one language. Those uh, the psychology behind, and I know that you. Uh, this is way more your depth pool than mine with your educational history. Uh, the psychology behind the babies and that babies can make all the sounds, uh, you know, uh, process all the different sort of alphabet sounds, the you know everything that comes with it uh, of all languages. If we teach them when they're young, uh, really seems like a lost opportunity in today's world, doesn't it? It does, and. Um... You know, children are so flexible and uh, and able, and um, but um, you know, but there's also uh, so much fear around um, opening that up, and you know, and I include myself in that. 
you know, I, I am, I, I am afraid that, um, you know, the, from with my grandson that, you know, that uh, I don't want him to be confused. Yeah. And so it's natural to a human. I think it's natural for humans to be fearful. Mm-hmm. Our guest here on The Shift is Dr. Lorna Williams. She's working to preserve indigenous languages. Before the break, Lorna, you had said how it's natural for us as people to fear things that we don't understand. And I agree. I think it is quite natural for us to be afraid of things that we just don't get. Yeah. Um, I know that um, I thought it was so amazing uh, at the beginning of the hockey season when the Edmonton Oilers and Ethan Bear uh, had his name written on the back of his jersey uh, in in uh, proper alphabet too. Um, and I don't I don't know where he's from, so forgive me for that. Um, but he, uh, I thought that was amazing. Uh, I'm also a fan of him as a hockey player too, so I can carry that. Um, but the um, the uh, it is important to carry it forward with younger generations. Um, I think it's. In, I think all of us as parents have one thing in common, and this is the this is the commonality that I really want all of us to get. Who's with you and I right now, is that we have this joint concern and common concern of preserving our children's future and the things that matter inside the way we communicate. We're seeing it in all of our lives today with text messages and short messages and all those things. And to me, in my love affair for language, it erodes the beauty of language in general. Mm. So then I would take that and sort of amplify by the fact that nobody's really trying to take away my language and say, whoa, can you imagine that? A, not only that, it is getting manipulated and changed over time as it does, but now faster than ever. And we're getting lazier than ever. And oh, by the way, your entire family history, you know, really rides on you knowing this stuff. I don't have that layer. So what do you see with your, with your family and young people today? How important is that? Because I think what I get from this, I get how I can um, keep it alive by just learning around it um, and being able to, when I see a street sign, at least try to pronounce it properly. So that part makes sense to me, but it must be so deeply rooted when you look at the young people in and around your family and community. It's... um. And I've had the real uh, privilege to, um, you know, to work with young people learning their language, and or not just not just learn, yeah, learning their language, but um, you know, keeping it awakened in within themselves. I was part of a conference uh, conversation uh, last week, and one of the 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 conference members in the group was one of my nieces and she was recalling um at a time when i developed a, a language immersion camp and so this would have been in 1977 wow. in our home community i had a class of uh, grade sixes and so they were you know 11 and 12 years old and i took them uh, into a part of our territory uh, that was, um, you know, that didn't have electricity. It didn't have running water. We had, you know, there were houses, but, and we, and we, we, and I brought with us um, people who knew our stories, people who knew our, our life on the land, you know, hunting, fishing, uh, berry picking, uh, medicinal plant picking. And, um, and we just spent the, the, the days immersed in our language and on the land and with each other. And um, 
and she was remembering that and which helped me to remember it too. Uh, and she was ta- talking about how, what that did for her. Cause, because now she's one of the, she's one of the language champions, you know, promoting the learning of the language in our community and with young people. And it caused me to, to kind of think about that class of students and, in 1977 and how powerful they they've become in you know in promoting our knowledge system and our languages and our language and um and so and i remember watching them and they didn't use the language you know there were a few who who i knew still used the language but it our language already was not really active and every afternoon I had, um, they listened to stories. They just got themselves comfortable, you know, on the ground. And uh, this elder couple who uh, lived in this com- this little village um, would just tell them stories. And the I remember the, the grandfather, you know, didn't speak any English. I'm sure he knew some, but he didn't use it. And he would just tell the stories of our of the land, and just and they were so amazing. And I remember after the third day, the the these young people like he would he would you know put a twist in his story, and they would laugh. So I knew they had it, and I it just made me so appreciative to understand that these young people had it in their bodies and in their hearts and in their minds. And, um, and I think that it was something that was just so, so important, not just for them, but for us as adults to witness this and to know this. And, um, and so it really helped us, you know, to really strengthen our, our resolve to keep our, to keep our language going. And so young people, it's really important and it's important for them. And I spend a lot of time talking to young people and I went back, for example, to my home community and I was doing, um, I was doing a survey of, um, of how, of what is important in the language. So I was talking to different groups in the community and one of the last groups that I spoke to was a group of high school students. And, um, and I asked them, I said, how many of you use our language in when you're playing sports? And, you know, and there was silence and then, and then they asked me what I, what I meant. And I was telling them that, that Mount Curry was known, the young people in Mount Curry were known to as, um, as one of the groups that used our language, you know, in their team sports, wherever they played. And it was a real strength for them. Yeah, I was going to say that's a heck of a tactic. <laughs> it would be great. Exactly. Yeah. And um and other communities noticed that because then they used to ask me, how, how did you achieve, manage that, you know, to keep that? And, but it, it had declined in, in my community. And so I was asking them about this. <laughs> this is the strength of young people. And so we were chatting about this, talking about it. They got so excited. After the meeting, 
I went into the staff room and um, to to uh, <laughs> to use the washroom and um, and there was a man sitting in there and he and he I was walking by and he said what did you say to those students and I thought oh my god what did I <laughs> what, oh. what's happened <laughs> yeah between the time I wrapped up the meeting in that room and walked into the staff room three students had already accosted this man who was the who was the sports director <laughs> and they told him we want to we want to use our language in in sports and, that's amazing <laughs> you know well, so young people are are you know young people are amazing when you when you when you can push those you know the buttons that uh, that are alive in them yeah and and that connection is um you know, creating connection. What I what I really took from that story, it's a great story. I like that moment where you panic for a second and go, oh, what did I do? <laughs> I think we've all done that. Um, the uh, the blind spots of language are incredibly important. Um, and, you know, the, to use your example of sport, when someone can, you know, speak their, their language uh, of their people, and then you step into certain scenarios, it's like a switch goes off, this autopilot kicks into your brain about language use where you just go back into, this is why I speak this way and this is where I speak this way. And we're chameleons as people by nature in the um, belonging. Uh, I do a lot of writing about I belong, right? Mm -hmm. And we often as people fundamentally, just the function of our brains is, you know, um, the fear of looking bad, right? And the I belong. And if I go into a situation and I look bad, then I won't belong. It's just a function of the brain. Um, it takes a lot of work to be able to say, okay, brain, no, you do belong right here, right now. This is you, who you are right now is everything you belong. So this particular space, just go into it and be yourself. And that takes a lot of work. That's not easy. Yeah. Uh, and then if you add in a layer of a whole other language, I imagine there are just there, I, I see it in our world too, where you just walk in. My uh, my um, girlfriend Melanie, she's French first language, and so there are times when we will walk into a place and the switch immediately goes off: English this way, French this way, right? This scenario English, this scenario French. And so, when you're looking at a language that, um, for lack of a better word, could be fading, what an opportunity would it be to create? Uh, awareness around all of the blind spots where you could say to young people, hey, you're not excluding anybody if you live into your language in these different scenarios that you might not have. And I would imagine this. If you simply use the language to greet people and just say, hello, how's your day? However that translates, that moment keeps it alive and someone expressing themselves, being themselves in a moment and not creating that. And if someone says, well, what does that mean? Oh, well, that's how we greet in my family because of story, history, bloodlines, da-da-da. So is it, do you see it that way, that those blind spots and the opportunity really gets found in those blind spots where we could actually create these different language pieces um, every day without even really having to become experts in multi-language just to sort of keep them keep them there, that we could find it in things like sport, art, life, greetings, hello, goodbye. It's like Hawaiians in Aloha, right? Like it is stuck. 
Yeah, and I think that that's what people are doing, you know, with um, with introductions and uh, land acknowledgements. You know, we're beginning that way, mm-hmm. and um, the and that's why I told you the story about that. You know, the community here on the island uh, that's you know changing its its uh, place names um, that. Uh, it's it's a step it's a step to opening the world to each other and uh, you know and it's a, that's important in all languages we come you know we come from a very multilingual world yeah and um, oh, yeah i mean that's all mixed up yeah and and but we're capable we're able mm-hmm. and uh, if we're open the importance of indigenous language to canadians in general mm-hmm. what what is that what why is that so important for us for, for here in Canada, yeah. because, you know, I say that uh, what I often say is that um, that before we became Canada, the language, there were languages that were the voice of the land across the country. And, um, and there's, you can learn and know about um about a place through the language. And so the people, there were people here, humans, who spoke a language. And um, um, before it became Canada. And, um, you know, and those languages right from the very beginning were, um, were under assault by the you know, by the um, by the people coming onto the land, and um, and so those languages, you know, and it's something that that happened around the world. But in Canada, it uh, as settlers and explorers um, moved, uh, you know, moved westward, they were silencing the people as they went, and. Um, and so it's really important, you know, I tell P- Canadians that you came to this land, you adopted this land, you made it your home. And your home is made up of, um, you know, of a language that was born long before you arrived. And for you to know this, to know what you've adopted is important because it's it's now a part of of Canadians heritage our languages if i say that i love canada it seems only appropriate that um loving all the things that makes canada canada mm-hmm. matters yeah and that doesn't get into any political conversation. That doesn't get into any of the BS stuff around all of it. Mm-hmm. It just means that if I'm going to say that this is the best country in the world, which I do, mm-hmm. um, to me, what I'm learning from this conversation with you, Lorna, is that that also means all of the things. Now, I would say that in my life, I've probably adopted that, but I don't know if I've actually sort of declared it as being a thing in my life, mm. which is powerful. Uh, thank you for giving me that. How do I say, how, how do I, what's something that I can say, sorry, I, I, your, the language of your family, 
And am I even saying that right? Community, family? I don't know. I don't know the right yeah, word. Community. My yeah. family, my community. Sure. Um, um, what, how, what was your the language of your community? You said it earlier. Uh, it's Lilwet, but our language, uh, we say which means, which translates to um, the voice of the people. Oh, interesting. And is person. Okay. Um, and is there something that you can teach us today that um, about whether it's a greeting or a hello or I love you or or something along those lines uh, from your community that we can we can put out there? I mean, I think that when we create it actually as a language, we can talk about it as being a language, but when we create it, much like when we uh, say someone is a person and then we say, you know, this is Shane, this is Laura, Lorna, we we actually create them as as a as a being. Mm-hmm. Um, how what's something what's something that we can create for everybody here? Well. I, I say um, when people when people greet each other, like uh, in in my world, uh, we say kashwa'ah, kashwa'ah. Okay, so there's a lot of sounds there that aren't yeah. not sounds for me. Um, kash, so kash. Yeah. Okay. So is um, that sound is you like you a little bit of a lisp push sound? the air over your back teeth. So it's not cath, but it would be more like cash. Cash. Ka- yeah, cash. Cash. And yeah. then what's next? Good. What? What? Cash. What? Cash. What? Ow. Ow. Cash. What? Ow. Yeah, good. Hey, hey you what did, did I just say? <laughs> what you said is um, um, it's kind of an acknowledgement that you're around, you know, like you're okay. in. Um, and and but it also means that uh, it's um, you're around and and it's good you're around but um, um, but there is kind of like a hope that you're okay in in where you are okay. and um, that's yeah funny. okay I'm gonna try it again right now see if I can yeah. get my brain to do it Keshwa uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's not hard. We can do this. Yeah. We can learn these things. You can. Yeah. This is beautiful. (laughs) Now, one of the things, Lorna, that I didn't tell you when we started this conversation is I often don't give credentials when we start conversations because Mm -hmm. um, I always want me and everyone else to listen in just from a place of this is Lorna, right? This is Lorna's love for what she talks about. And um, so you're on the island. Are you in Victoria or? I'm in Victoria. Yeah. And uh, my favorite, one of my favorite places in this country, by the way. Um, so Dr. Lorna Williams, Associate Professor Emeritus, Indigenous Education, um, Educational Psychology, University of Tennessee, um, Simon Fraser University as well, Areas of Focus, Aboriginal Education, Science, Teacher Education, Indigenous Knowledge and Wisdom, Collaborative Learning, Adult Learning, Mediated Learning, Structural Cognitive Modifiability, Dynamic Assessment, Curriculum Development, Cognitive Development, Aboriginal Language, Revitalization and Maintenance, Cross-Cultural Education, Anti-Racism ed- racism Education, Environmental Education, Mental Health Two, all of those things, that's from the U of Vic website, that big long list. <laughs> is what Lorna's expertise is. And uh, Dr. Lorna Williams, um, thank you for sharing your heart with us today. And I, I do mean it. I, this is one of the things that I, I, Indigenous Peoples Day and all of this is that I struggle with in, in today's world is I don't want it to be a Hallmark holiday where we just have this conversation today. 
So my invitation is sincere when I say I would love to have you back to just nerd out about languages and that lens of how languages all work and and um, how when we really celebrate language, language is the bridge from our soul to this linear world we have. And when we learn how to celebrate language, the clarity that comes back to us is so important. So I would love it if you'd come back and we could talk about those things I'd too. love it. And thank you very much. And, uh, and thanks for just keeping it at a conversation and yeah, for me to be able to tell you some stories. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thanks, Lorna. You have a wonderful day. It's the Shift Podcast. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Ryan Hightops O'Donnell. Okay, wait. Did it work? No, nothing. No, happened. ding. You didn't hear anything. Ding, Sorry. Ding. No, nothing. You didn't hear anything. Nothing. Nothing. Heard so nothing. how come my email chime goes on, but then this one doesn't? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't. Nothing? If it makes you feel any better, I didn't hear the email thing go off. Did you hear oh, it go really? off, Brendan? Oh, maybe it was just me. Yeah. Maybe that's what's happening. No, no I, I think was, it was quiet. I think I just heard it through the speaker, through my headphones. Right. I don't think it was. So went how does that yeah. build your confidence in our professionalism? We don't even know how this mm, radio station I don't works. Know. I don't know how any of this stuff works. It's amazing that these shows happen. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're the technical operator and you don't even know. Oh, well. The know. light is red. That must be good, right? Oh, well. Okay. Ding. Okay, Ryan. Thank you. As mentioned, I'm feeling a little sleepy after that COVID second dose. So I'm going to start with a story to bump my energy and yours. All right. I'm going to say a man's name and you'll understand what I mean. Nicholas Cage. Rock he is the king of bringing absurd and often way too much energy to any film. But magically, that energy can save a really bad movie. And like, it's no secret that I love him. I, I think that Nick Cage, as Steve Stebbing, our film critic, has said, he puts everything into every performance, no matter how small and terrible the movie is. And I really respect that. Bruce Willis sucks now. I hate that <laughs> breaks my heart because I grew up watching Die Hard and, uh, you know, it sucks. But he will walk into a movie, say three lines and hire a stunt double to fire a gun. You know, he does nothing. He just doesn't care. Nick Cage still cares and it's beautiful. And Nick Cage has been doing a bunch of movies to, you know, pay for all of the castles he bought and random stuff like that, which he did mm -hmm. buy two castles, by the way. Well, here we are. There was a new movie coming out. And I promise this trailer actually makes the movie look really good, despite the premise being ridiculous. This movie stars Nicolas Cage. And I am not joking when I say that he is a truffle farmer and he is trying to rescue his pig who has been kidnapped. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone stole her. I don't understand. Tell me you are. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. There's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. <laughs> okay. One, one note. He is, goes into a restaurant and asks about a pet pig or a missing truffle pig. And the guy says, tell him who you are. Who the, what the heck do you do as a truffle farmer that everybody in this town knows your name? I've never met a truffle farmer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, this movie sounds ridiculous. Um, yeah. Okay. That's weird. Um, now, so because of their high value, the possibility to cultivate truffles has always been a topic of much interest in around the world. 
Only a handful of truffle farms actually exist. Yeah, so it's true. Truffles are, there's a reason they're expensive. And truffle, uh, when you play Civilization Five, the video game where you try to build your own civilization, when you find truffles on the map, there will be nuclear war for them. And just, that's that's just a case. That's just a fact. I don't now, know if that really translates out. video games <laughs> into real life and how that explains <laughs> truffles, but okay. Yeah. How, there's, my, there's my exposure to truffles before eating them. We'll put it that mm-hmm. way. So this movie comes out on July 16th, which is great. Now, Mark Malkin, who is uh, uh, speaking to Variety's Mark Malkin, the director of the film said that he and Nicolas Cage became best buds while filming this, saying, quote, he's the most loyal, one of the most loyal people in my life after working on Pig together. This movie's called Pig, by the way. Uh, we talk almost every few days. <laughs> we text all day. He FaceTimed me like two days ago. We really support each other and help each other with things. We started making the movie when things were going tough through very similar personal things in our life. We bonded over it. I just like to say that when a director and an actor really get along, it's usually going to at least make one aspect of the movie better. I recommend you watch the trailer. This looks weird, gritty, uh, and Nick Cage is in it. So even if it's really bad, you will get to laugh because Nicolas Cage is in it. That's where I would play pig sound effects, but my computer doesn't work. Yeah. Wink, wink. Yeah. Travel big, travel big, travel big. <laughs> I just love that his name is, his name, the movie's called Pig. It's great. That's weird. Okay, uh, not weird. So now, a hot topic. Usually, It's brought up at least once a week on the International Dispatch with our buddy Chris Gilbert, who is over over in uh, Tokyo. And uh, we talk about the Olympics at least once a week. Now, there is some new news about the Olympics. I'm not really going to talk too much about the perceived hatred of the olympics in japan because who better to talk about that than a man who lives in tokyo but i do have some interesting information over how this is going to work foreign spectators who managed to get themselves over to tokyo are able to clap they're able to you know stomp their feet but you can't screw you know you can't scream and sorry, I need to correct myself. You, there are no foreign spectators, any spectator from Japan. So local spectators only. Right. You can't, much like many roller coasters during the pandemic, that said, hey, you're going to spread COVID when you're on this roller coaster that's moving at 100 kilometers an hour. <laughs> Don't scream. Uh, which there is some science to suggest that that is true. But I think it makes a lot of sense for Tokyo because man, oh man, when you learn more about the planning behind this, you can see why so many people in Japan do not want this to happen. Organizers are allowing a tiny amount of Japanese spectators to watch. You're not able to cheer. And Redmond Shannon spoke to a Canadian Olympian who will be at the games and is rightfully stoked about it. The COVID-modified Olympic Village is ready for athletes. And organizers say they are ready for fans. Venues will now be allowed a spectator capacity of 50%, up to a maximum of 10,000 people. Well, I got to tell you my reaction this morning when I heard that was, yay! Like, um, and, and I have to do it quietly because it's pretty much what I'm going to have to do when I'm in Tokyo. That's because Team Canada's chef de mission, Marnie McBean, and everyone else at the arenas will not be allowed to cheer. I think to golf, I think to tennis, I think to live theatre that a quiet audience can give incredible gravitas to a moment. And for sure, you know what? People are going to still do, they're going to gasp and they're going to clap and they're going to stomp. 
The three-time Olympic champion says her athletes are just happy to be competing after the one-year delay, even if no Canadian fans will be allowed to travel. I know it's it's not perfect. Um, nothing has been over the last 18 months, um, but there will be witnesses. There will be people present to share um, in the energy, in the moment. I apologize for the rapid stomping there. There's a lesson well, a as to how you stomp while you're at a... That was yeah, sorry. startling for some of us. Well, imagine you're at the Olympics and you hear the silence of the Japanese crowd and then all of a sudden, bang, 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 bang. I've just prepared you. You're welcome. Now, organizers are still considering <laughs> if they should allow alcohol to be served in the venues, which I would argue probably not a great idea. Uh, it's going to loosen at least one person up and they're going to run around and probably take their mask off. And, you know, those strict rules that people will abide by, that's where you are probably going to, you know, it's not going to work as great. Now, the Tokyo 2020 president, Saiko Hashimoto, said that experts can voice their concerning, but he still says that they're going to allow up to 10,000 fans. Now, there's a massive stadium in Tokyo that was for the 1964 Olympics. They've renovated it. Uh, now, 65% of the public say they want the event postponed again or canceled. And 70% said they want the games to not, they don't think the games could be held safely and securely. I um, am of the opinion, someone who is what would have planned to watch this, that they should just postpone it. And the reason why is because when I found out that Japan was going to host an Olympics in my time, I was ecstatic. If there's any country that's going to put on a show, not just the sports, it's going to be Japan. Have you ever watched anime? It's the most extra thing you'll ever see in your life. And they were embracing that identity. And I, I don't want to lose that. I think that the world would miss out if it's not given the full chance to breathe. However, it does get it perilously close to the Beijing Winter Olympics, right? Well, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Broadcast rights and overlap of staff. Yep. It's it's there are logistic crazy stuff happening here. But do you want to know a crazy fact? Yes. Tokyo, Japan, is not allowed to cancel the games. They have no control over it. The only people who can do that are the IOC. And I'm sorry, but they're never going to let that happen. That doesn't not anymore. Me, not though. again. It's yeah. It's it's. Well, you think of Brazil too during Zika virus it's in 2016. It seems like eons ago. And there were so many concerns about the logistics of that Olympics. Yeah. Pause it. You know, people can wait. I feel like we've been waiting 15 months for life to get back to normal. You know, I, I my summer is going to be spent going outside and doing as many things as possible, not sitting inside watching the Olympics. And I think that they're going to lose a boatload of money. Because well, they of already are going to lose a boatload of money. Yeah. But I would like to offer this perspective to you, my friend. Hit me. Now, as much as you and I fancy ourselves to be athletic and specimens of the human form. Uh -huh. These people have time, their training, their weight gain, their loss, their strength, yep. everything um, to peak at a certain time. And it takes years to get there. And then they've had to adjust and now they're doing it again. And uh, I mean, if they, if they were to hear the Ryan O'Donnell rule of like, well, Ryan suggested we actually just wait. Um, there might be athletes knocking at your door. Turns out, athletes um work out and eat differently than you and i do yeah really I mean, they also get older me too and so that 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 non-competitor who could have been mid-pack in the next olympics who could be a winner 
uh, could be a real competitor now because you're getting old, big fella. Yeah, there. That's the problem, right? Is because you know, team. Like, let's think about NBA basketball players who are going to that. They're not going to be so impacted by missing a year at the Olympics compared to someone who is 16 years old and is in the prime of their early career. Hitting pause on that is damaging, and I understand that completely. Yeah. Do I think that when this show happens? It will still have entertaining moments. Absolutely. Do I think that the Japanese will do everything they can to make it fun and exciting? Definitely. Do I think there are going to be consequences of doing it here and now? I would say probably yes. That's where I'm on it. I think of gymnasts and stuff like that, right? I mean, yep. those kinds of people where the younger folks typically are the rock stars, right? As opposed to some of the um, some of the older disciplines where like long distance runners and stuff like that tend to be not necessarily 18 right um yep. and sprinters tend to be a little bit more mature in the you know mid 20s now up until 1992 they actually did have the winter and summer olympics in the same year so mm-hmm. that's why they split it up too though right was the i mean the the olympics much like the nhl and all those other things it's all about broadcast rights and money and so when it was winter olympics summer olympics the idea was let's break it up by 2 years Maybe the give a damn factor goes up a little bit and everyone gets a little bit more excited for the ratings and we make more money. And plus, uh, it's a lot different on resources for everyone else. And I, I mean, I remember it was, it was Olympic crazy for like a whole year back then. And then now yeah. it's kind of like, oh, it's the Olympics again. Oh, it's the Olympics again. Oh, it's the what? Right. So it is different how it works. So I'm curious. Mm-hmm. It is curious. I mean, I don't know. I mean, are they going to pipe in sounds like they do for the hockey games? I, well, I would hope so. Or like when a car has a app where you can change the sound. Do you know there's a car in Europe, like tiny, two-cylinder engine, and you can change the sound to make it sound inside the car like it's a Nissan GTR. Oh, no way. Just, can you imagine that, though? There, You're in a tiny little Ford Fiesta, and you turn on the car, and it sounds like a you know a <laughs> V8 Mustang inside. Well, that was, That's that was one of the arguments um, about electric cars, right? I said you couldn't hear them coming. So they started to add some speakers that make its engine sounds <laughs> on the outside. And there's, um, there, oh, I think it was a, the BMW. Oh, it's the new electric uh, BMW iX that has been uh, shown at the, the car shows that you can, um, there's a button to make it sound like a car. And some of the other ones, uh, you can make it sound like a real, uh, like real uh, big engine car, which not a big deal. Cause if you think back to some of the sports cars, you just got me geeking out like crazy. I remember the first time I drove an Aston Martin Vantage V8. It was a 2000. You drove an Aston Martin. Oh yeah. I used to have a car blog. I got lucky. I once I did a review of a Bentley Mulsanne, $454,000. It was a beautiful oh, car. It had massaging seats <laughs> and it had like uh, champagne glasses and it was unbelievable. Anyway, uh, the first time I drove that I learned, um, was actually my buddy James's car. And James said, just so you know, when you get to 3,500 RPM, there's baffles on the exhaust that open up and let the sound out. So the car just kind of purrs quietly as you drive around slowly. But when you open it up a little bit, it roars like a lion. So I think that's a that's a pretty, you know, it's a big thing that we're going to see a lot of in the future is that sort of manufactured big car sound. It, it's cool. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, I definitely, it's, it's happening. I mean, 100%. Probably most cars these days have it already and we don't even notice. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.